Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Timothy. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, down across the chapter break through chapter 6, verse 2. So 517 through 6-2. And just to keep that in context, we need to keep in mind that Paul is giving instructions to specific groups of people within the church there in the city of Ephesus. And the instructions, uh, it seems like, are motivated by some of the issues in the church related to these various groups. And so in our last recording, we looked at chapter 5, 1 through 16, and there Paul gave instructions to Timothy on how to deal with different age groups and gender groups within the church. And he also gave instructions on the church's system of widow care because there were some that were taking advantage of that, and then it wasn't working out so well and was bringing some slander and shame upon the church. So he gave instructions on that as well. Here, beginning in verse 17, Paul gives instructions about some specific issues concerning elders in the church. And then in the first part of chapter 6, he gives instructions about slaves who have become followers of Jesus. All of these instructions are part of Paul's teaching about how members of God's household are supposed to conduct themselves, as Paul said in chapter 3, verse 15. And so here, let's begin in verse 17 with some specific instructions concerning some issues related to elders in the church. And so verse 17 begins by saying, the elders, and it's going to go on and talk about the elders who lead well. But we know from the rest of the New Testament, for example, Acts chapter 20, Titus chapter 1, that when this word translated elder, which refers to an older man, when this word was used of church leaders, the term overlaps with the term overseer. So elder and overseer overlap and refer really to the same body of people who are responsible to shepherd and care for and protect and guide and guard the church. So elders and overseers are the same group. And so in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul gave qualifications, but he used the term overseer. Here, he uses the term elder. But it's the same group of people that he's already talked about there in chapter 3. So this is what he says. He says, the elders who lead well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so elders, overseers who work hard at it, who give lots of time and energy at this, are considered worthy of double honor. He even specifies those who work hard specifically at proclaiming or preaching and teaching. The word preaching is more like acting as a herald, proclaiming the gospel, announcing the news about Jesus, and then teaching is more explaining Christian doctrine, Christian truth, how to live the Christian life and all that. So those who work hard at that are especially worthy of double honor. What does he mean by double honor? Well, there is the first piece of honor, which is the honor that's appropriate to their position and their work. But there's also the second piece of honor. That is, as we'll see in verse 18, the honor of being taken care of materially, that they're they're provided for their work. They're materially cared for. And so look at verse 18, where it becomes clear. He says, for, explaining what he just said about being worthy of double honor. So 
For the scripture says, and he's going to quote an Old Testament passage, and then he's actually going to refer to uh, a passage or a saying of Jesus. So, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. This comes from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And threshing was the activity of breaking loose the useful grain from the stalk and the husk. And often the way it worked in ancient Israel, when Deuteronomy was written, as well as in uh, first century Israel, was that you would have an ox pull what was called a threshing sled. A threshing sled was a large piece of wood, oftentimes with like cleats, like knobs of metal or something on the bottom. And as they would drag that over the grain, that would that would crack open the husk, break free the the piece of grain, the kernel of grain that you wanted to keep. Then you would throw that up in the air and the wind would blow the broken husk away and you would be left with the solid, useful grain. So that's threshing. The point of Deuteronomy 25.4 is that that you should allow an ox to eat some of the grain while he is working. Don't put a muzzle on him so he can't do that. Yes, you're going to make more profit if you don't do that. Yes, you're going to have more grain if you don't do that. But that's not right or fair to the ox. And so that's in one hand about an ox. But Paul also quotes this passage here and in 1 Corinthians 9 to show that the principle that was illustrated by caring for the ox also pertain to workers and employees and servants and all that, that they deserve to be taken care of for their work as well. And so he quotes that passage here to make the point, double honor includes providing materially for those who work hard at this. Then he quotes another, uh, another passage or another saying that states the principle explicitly. It's this, and the labor is worthy of his wages. So the scripture says, don't muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages. And this is a saying of Jesus that is found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Both there in its original context in the gospel of Luke, and here it's making the same point. It's highlighting that those who labor at teaching should be honored, and not merely honored in word, but also honored with wages, with being provided for materially, with wages. And so Paul is saying that elders who work hard at this, those who give themselves faithfully to this work, you should give them the respect for their work and their position, but you should also give them honor by providing for their physical needs. So that's the first issue that he wants to deal with concerning elders. The next one is this. What should we do or what about when there is an accusation of sin against an elder? How do we deal with that? And so Paul gives some instructions on that beginning in verse 19. Here's what he says. He says, do not accept an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. This follows the instructions and wisdom from the Old Testament law. It comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Let me read that to you. Deuteronomy 19, 15 says, A single witness shall not rise up against a person regarding any wrongdoing or any sin that he commits. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And so what Paul does is takes the this wisdom here from Deuteronomy 19 and applies it to the situation of an accusation against an elder. Now, this would probably indicate that there had been some accusations against elders in the church. We don't know all the details of that, 
but there seems to have been at least something going on in the church that motivated Paul to take the wisdom of Deuteronomy 19 and apply it to this matter. And and so he says, you need to have two or three witnesses uh, before you even consider an accusation against an elder. And then verse 20 says, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest will be fearful and they've supplied fearful of sinning. Now we need to clarify the translation here because this translation says those who continue in sin. And I think that actually kind of confuses us a little bit because it makes it sound like Paul is saying they've they've been confronted and then they keep on sinning after being confronted. That's not actually what Paul says. Paul says literally, simply, those who are sinning. So don't receive an accusation against an elder unless there's two or three witnesses. And so two or three witnesses bring an accusation in Paul's understanding of how to handle this. They bring an accusation, an investigation ensues, the accusation is confirmed, indeed, they are sinning. That's what Paul is describing here. So it's not saying, oh, you bring this accusation, you've confronted them, and they keep on doing it. It's after the accusation comes and an investigation ensues, and it is confirmed, indeed, there is definite uh, real sin going on with this particular elder. When that's the case, what should you do? Well, Paul says, when that's the case, you should rebuke him in the presence of the whole church. Now, that seems harsh, so why do that? Well, because they are, they are elders, they're leaders, and their ministry and their influence affects the whole church. And therefore, um, it needs to be dealt with in a way that's going to affect the whole church as well. So dealing with this sin that has now been confirmed and discovered needs to be done in a way that will benefit and influence the whole church too. So look at the aim. You do this so that the rest, that is the rest of the church and maybe the rest of the elders, um, that it will steer them away from similar behavior. And so really there is a purifying and redemptive aim to this that sin is harmful and destructive, we're rebuking them in the presence of all to try to purify the whole church, not just this individual man, but the whole church needs to be uh, considered in how we deal with this as well. And there is great wisdom in this, wisdom that in our highly individualistic age, we need to make sure we don't miss. Because the fact is, we know from experience that when uh, a leader, a church leader of some sort, sins in some sort of way, particularly in a notable and you know ongoing sort of way, that it does have corporate effects. It affects not just himself, it affects lots of other people. There's a ripple out effect and it's real. Our highly individualistic age likes to pretend like our choices are only our own personal choices. Paul's world was much more of a collectivist mentality where they recognized the connection between people. And so for the good of everybody involved, we can't let this thing go on and we want to deal with it in a way that's going to actually, in some regards, bring, bring instruction and teaching and purity to the whole church. And that's the goal of this. Now, this is a very serious thing and it shouldn't be entered into lightly or without proper thoughtfulness and circumspection, right? We need to be careful about that. That's why Paul even says you need two or three, at least two or three witnesses. You need to confirm that. When you discover that indeed they really are sinning, then you need to deal with it. So there's a seriousness about this, 
And, and as a result of that, look what Paul says next to Timothy in verse 21. He says, I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these things, maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So notice how serious this is to Paul, that this needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be taken, uh, dealt with in a way that recognizes the weightiness of this action. And so Paul uses an oath. I solemnly exhort you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the angels. Like There's an oath where Paul is saying, before God, before King Jesus, recognizing the presence of the angels all around us as God's people, this is weighty. And this needs to be done with no bias, he says. This word is used only here in the New Testament, and it means this idea of no prejudgment. Uh, and he follows that up with doing nothing out of partiality or favoritism. Like, And this cannot be a personal vendetta, in other words. And so uh, this is seriousness. Paul gives this oath and this charge to Timothy that he, he, he does this, but he does this with with the sobriety and the circumspection appropriate to it. Then Paul shifts in verse 22 to even the seriousness of commissioning someone to be an elder. He says, do not lay hands upon anyone too quickly and thereby share in the responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Now, some have thought maybe the lay hands on is lay hands on because you know you've taken this accusation and now you're presenting them before the church. Possible, but more likely is uh, appointing someone to eldership. This idea of laying hands is consistently and regularly used throughout the New Testament for commissioning elders or church leaders. It's used of commissioning Timothy himself. It's used. Uh, in the book of Acts for laying hands on elders. And that's probably the idea here. And so what Paul is saying is, don't appoint someone as an elder too quickly uh, before you have a chance to really know them and know their character and know if they really are uh, increasingly formed into Christ's likeness and have the character that's been described in uh, chapter three of this very letter. In fact, in chapter three, Paul even said, don't let them be a new convert for an elder, right? Don't let them be a new convert. They need some time to, to grow and to mature. Um, and so you, you take that idea of not being a new convert, you add that to what Paul says here. And what that tells us is there must be time to make sure that the person who is being appointed to eldership really has the necessary character to be a positive influence and a model of discipleship in the church. So don't appoint somebody as an elder too quickly. And then Paul says, and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. When he says share the responsibility, literally it's just share in, participate in, in some sort of way. Like there, again, there's this corporate connection. And if you put somebody into position way too quickly without uh, taking time to get to know them and examine their life and make sure they have the character, then you share in the wreckage of their bad behavior. You share in the wreckage of their ongoing sin. You share in the damage it causes in the church. There's a sense in which you are partly responsible for that because you were hasty in putting this person into office. And Paul then says, you need to keep yourself free from sin. That is pure from sin. Even in this sort of way that we want to 
really pursue purity, and that means in taking seriously the responsibility for putting men of high character into the position of eldership. That leads then Paul to take a brief aside to give Timothy some specific advice for himself. But it's probably advice motivated by the whole situation there in Ephesus, including some of the elders who are part of the problem in the church and who are sinning in the church, along with some of the stuff about widows that he's got to deal with, right? Like there's a lot of stress involved in all of this. And so Paul says to Timothy in verse 23, don't go on drinking only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and for your frequent ailments. One commentator actually says that, uh, quoting some uh, writers from the time period, says this was like standard sort of basic medical advice for stomach issues, even things like ulcers and some of that. And that seems to be what Paul is doing here. In view of the situation, Timothy, knowing Timothy, maybe knowing how Timothy uh, handles conflict and how much stress it causes them, they work together for a long time. We don't know all of the backstory, but we can kind of guess and speculate There's a lot of tension going on in the church and a lot of problems. Paul has given Timothy tons of direct uh, um, advice in this letter and things that he needs to do in the church there to make sure that the church is operating the way it's supposed to. Paul gives Timothy some advice on how to take care of himself in the midst of all of this. Don't drink only water. Take some uh, wine for your frequent ailments, for ailments perhaps motivated by having to deal with conflict and the stress of the situation and Paul knowing how that affected Timothy. And then in the next verse, Paul returns to the specific topic at hand, sharing in the sins of others and says, the sins of some people are quite evident. They're obvious. They're completely clear, right? You don't have to do hardly any investigating. There it is, right? They're, They're obvious. Going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. And literally what he says is, but there's actually, they've left out a word, but for others, but for other people, their sins follow after them. It's like you, you all of a sudden you realize, oh, you see the trail of a disaster and damage done later after the fact. Their sins were kind of buried and hidden. They're going to lead to judgment as well, but they're not quite so obvious initially and up front. And so be mindful of that and realize that for some people, it's totally clear, but for others, you're going to have to really investigate some things and check some things out. Likewise, it's not all negative, verse 25. Likewise also, uh, deeds that are good are quite evident. They too are obvious, right? They're up front. And there are some of those that aren't so evident. And so the second half of verse 25, and those which are otherwise, that is good deeds which are not obvious, they can't be concealed either. Eventually they'll come to light and they'll come out. And so both good deeds and bad deeds have certain fruit. And there are bad deeds that are evident. There are good deeds that are evident. There are bad deeds that are kind of buried and hidden, and eventually uh, that's going to come out, right? And there are are good deeds that are behind the scenes and maybe not be noticed, maybe not be recognized, but eventually, if nothing else, by the Lord himself, and they're going to eventually come to be noticed as well. So that's Paul's instructions to Timothy on how to deal with some of the things going on with the elders in the church there in Ephesus. And then across the chapter break, at the beginning of chapter 6, Paul gives some brief instructions for slaves. And so he says in 6.1, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. 
And what we need to recognize is that slavery in the Roman world was everywhere present. And in a large city like Ephesus, there would be uh, thousands of slaves working on behalf of their masters all throughout the city. It was everywhere present. Uh, estimates put it at about 20 to 25 percent of the population of the empire at any given time were slaves. And in some places, it was higher than that. So it was everywhere present. It was taken for granted. It wasn't like uh, the slavery experience, say, of my country, the United States of America, back in the 1800s, where it was a race-based sort of thing. In the ancient world, slavery it didn't matter your, your race. It didn't matter your background. In some regards, slavery was sort of almost like an equal opportunity venture. You could become a slave because you got into debt and you needed to work off your debt. You could become a slave as being a prisoner of war. There was lots of different ways it could happen. And then once your family was slaves and you were born into it, well, that's how you found yourself, right? And your experience as a slave radically dependent on the type of slave you were and where you work. And there were opportunities for you to work off your debt and gain your freedom. And so it was a little bit different than some of the modern experience of slavery. And it was just so woven into the fabric of society that if, say, the New Testament authors called for the abolition of slavery in their letters. Um, one, it would have fallen on deaf ears. It would have been inconceivable. How could we even do that? How could you get any work done around here without that? And two, it would have actually been damaging to the, uh, the cause of Christ. And so uh, New Testament authors actually approached the issue to transform it from the inside out. And they did that by uh, changing the relationship between slaves and masters, especially when they both became believers, as we'll see in verse 2. And so here what Paul is saying is to the slaves who are believers, he wants them to uh, treat their masters as worthy of all honor. Give them respect, give them honor, uh, talk about them, show them honor. And he has a specific motivation for that, so that the name of God and our teaching will not be spoken against. In other words, we want you to treat them uh, with honor so that you're not viewed as some sort of social revolutionary, and thus you're actually damaging the, the name of God and the teaching about Jesus and hindering all of that there in town. Then he says in verse 2, those who have believers as their masters. And so this, uh, this slave and his master are both believers, and so you're working for a believing master must not be disrespectful to them, so you need to treat them with respect and honor as well, because they're brothers and sisters, but must serve them all the more. It should heighten your motivation to serve them, because they're now family. They're now like your brother or your sister in Christ, um, because those who partake of the benefit are believers and are beloved, and so that should motivate you out of love, uh, family-type love, to serve them all the more. Now, Paul doesn't mention it here, but in many of his other letters, Paul gives instructions to masters as well. And what we see is this really um, transforming this relationship where uh, slaves who were treated oftentimes poorly and looked down upon, when Paul gives instructions to masters, he treats the slaves with dignity. And even here, he does that in a very subtle sort of way that we maybe would miss, but they would never miss. And that is, he he actually bestows dignity on those who are servants 
or slaves by giving them, by speaking directly to them and giving them and assuming they have a real agency to make their own choices. Uh, that was countercultural in their world, and it's a way of speaking to them and about them with incredible dignity, and they are being honored uh, in that sort of way. And so Paul speaks to Timothy, tells him this is what he wants of Timothy. He does so in such a way that the servants, when this letter is read, will hear this, uh, these instructions to them, and it'll challenge them, and it'll encourage them and remind them. It'll also improve the relationship between uh, any believing masters who hear it because, you know, they're being honored as well. And so this all is seeking to transform this institution from the inside out. And Paul ends this section to Timothy by saying, teach and preach these things. Teach and preach these principles. Now, the word preach literally is actually exhort, urge. It's not proclaim here. It's exhort, urge these things. So teach and encourage these principles. It's the same combination of words that Paul uses when encouraging Timothy to give attention to the public reading and to the exhortation and to teaching. So teaching and exhortation is really at the heart of Timothy's ministry, and Paul is encouraging him to teach and exhort these things regarding these different groups of people in the church. All right, thanks for tuning in to this session on the listener's commentary on 1 Timothy. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported, crowd-funded Bible teaching ministry that's made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So thanks a ton to each and every one of you who make this ministry possible. Your generosity is bearing fruit in the lives of people all around the world. I get emails uh, frequently from people who are saying, this is what's helping me grow in my faith. I'm actually digging in and growing as a disciple for the first time in my life and the listener's commentary is a huge part of that. So thanks a ton for your support. Thanks a ton for the eternal impact it is having. And if you want to join the team of supporters, you can do that by swinging over to listenerscommentary.com and you can click the give button and you can set up a recurring monthly donation right there. Or you can sign up for the study hub as another way to support this ministry. All monthly donors, either through the study hub or through the give button, get access to the bonus materials, the courses and maps and charts and uh, ongoing additional resources that I'm adding to the Study Hub so you can dig in and study the Bible for yourself. So let me say in advance, thanks a ton for your support.